All right, this is chapter six of the Foot Miller book on biostratigraphy for paleobiology class. Because it is a historical science, a, center goal of, a central goal of paleontology is to determine the relative timing of any given set of events, even if the events took place in geographic locations that were far apart. For example, if we want to know whether a time interval was characterized by globally by a mass extinction, we must first figure out whether the sets of extinction events recognized in different places around the world actually occurred simultaneously. The assessment of age relationships such as these is a major goal of biostratigraphy, the study of the geometry, biotic composition, and time relations of fossiliferous rocks. Since its inception, biostratigraphy has relied on a set of basic principles concerning the stratigraphic ranges of taxa preserved in the fossil record, and these have permitted the development of a global geologic timescale. More recently, however, numerical methods have been developed that seek to combine information on the stratigraphic ranges of taxa contained at several separate localities, providing correlations at much finer scales of resolution than is generally possible by traditional biostratigraphic means. Biostratigraphy has also been transformed in recent years by the advent of sequence stratigraphy, which focuses on the processes that produced sets of strata. Sequence stratigraphers aim to recognize the fundamental repeated units of stratigraphic architecture, parasequences and sequences, that can be used as basis for, bases for correlation in their own right. It has also been recognized that fossil distributions tend to be affected predictably by the same depositional processes that produce the sequences. These patterns must be diagnosed and understood if paleontologists are to make full use of regional variations in fossil content of rocks in studies of taxonomic origination and extinction. We begin this chapter with a review of several fundamental principles of biostratigraphy and their utility for constructing a global geologic timescale. Then we turn to the palette of quantitative techniques that have greatly enhanced the ability of biostratigraphers to correlate fossiliferous rocks at high resolution. Finally, we consider the new generation of stratigraphic models that help diagnose the fundamental architecture of the fossil record and its effects on regional biotic patterns in space and time. 6.1, the nature of biostratigraphic data and correlation. All biostratigraphic methods require a detailed accounting of the occurrences, and in some cases, abundances of taxa within a set of strata under investigation. At any given outcrop, a worker can seek to determine the stratigraphic limits to the distribution of any fossil taxon that is present. We can refer to this interval as the stratigraphic range of the taxon, bounded at the base by the taxon's first appearance datum, FAD, and at the top by its last appearance datum, LAD. The FAD and LAD constitute the fundamental data for many approaches to biostratigraphy. Of course, it is highly unlikely that this local stratigraphic range encompasses the entire global stratigraphic range of the taxon. In most cases, we know about the global stratigraphic ranges of taxa uh, to be based on composites of information from several localities. Moreover, the preserved global stratigraphic range of a taxon is unlikely to preserve its entire true temporal range. Because the majority of individuals belonging to any species are not likely to be preserved in the fossil record, the true time of origination of any taxa, taxon must almost certainly predate its first documented appearance in the fossil record, and the true time of extinction almost certainly postdates its last undocumented appearance. 
Barring the intervention of postmortem processes that disturb its stratigraphic position, the presence of the same taxon at any two localities permits paleontologists to make a simple but important statement of correlation about the strata uh, at these localities. Strata must have been deposited during the... Sorry, the page is cut off. Um, extant, maybe, lifetime of the taxon? Of course, this statement something value only if the taxon in question is... Wow, that's a lot of it cut off. Um, yeah, if the taxon in question is something correlate, correlated, maybe, cor in something small global stratigraphic range. In general, Correlating strata in this way, biostratigraphers can use taxa, generally species that have two properties, two something properties. One, they are of limited stratigraphic, oh boy, something that ends in T-I-O-N. And two, they are geographically and <laughs> something widespread, ideally occurring in an, a variety of something types worldwide. Data with these properties, known as something or zone fossils, uh, have been used widely in the Phanerozoic, in the something of Phanerozoic strata. And global biostratigraphy intervals have often been recognized on the basis of one or more pervasive diagnostic species. Formally, such an interval is known as a zone or a biozone. In general, marine organisms that floated or swam in the water column, and terrestrial organisms that possessed components capable of wind-borne dispersal are best suited as zone fossils because of the greater likelihood that they will be widespread. In cases where the stratigraphic ranges of fossil taxa are too long for the taxa to be useful individually for correlation, they may nevertheless be useful in combination with other occurrences of taxa. At its simplest level, this involves the diagnosis and use of overlapping or concurrent ranges among taxa. Even if two or more taxa exhibit long stratigraphic ranges, the, geologic, uh, the interval of geologic time during which these taxa were extant simultaneously may have been far more limited. In such instances, the co-occurrence of these taxa permits correlations among strata in different venues that may be far more refined than what would be possible if only one of the taxa were present. Primarily through the use of these biostratigraphic tools, a global geologic timescale has emerged. See the inside front cover of this book. Whereas zones are demarcated based on the stratigraphic occurrences of individual fossil species or limited assemblages of species, more profound boundaries between stages and series, which tend to be local or regional in scope, as well as systems and eras, which are global in scope, are marked by the near-simultaneous loss of larger numbers of taxa and their replacements by other taxa. In fact, as we will see when we consider the history of global biodiversity, chapter 8, biotic changes can be particularly profound at a system and especially era boundaries. The absolute ages of important boundaries have been subsequently determined using radiometric dating techniques, which permit the calibration of geologic time intervals that correspond to the aforementioned stratigraphic intervals. Samples appropriate for radiometric analysis, which are typically volcanic in origin, have been difficult to obtain for many important boundaries, and the absolute calibration of the timescale has therefore not been straightforward. 
as researchers discover new materials from key horizons that are suitable for absolute dating and continue to refine methodologies used for absolute, date de absolute age determination, we can expect significant improvements to previous estimates of absolute ages, as well as the addition of age determinations for key boundaries that have heretofore not been dated. For example, analyses in the past decade and a half of a suit of samples obtained in the lowermost Cambrian rocks in northeastern Siberia by Samuel Bowring and colleagues 1993 have led to a recalibration to 544 million years ago of the Proterozoic Cambrian boundary. This stands in contrast to previous estimates that generally depicted the boundary as some 30 million years older. In this case, the reason for the redefined estimates was twofold. One, the samples used for dating were linked more definitively to the boundary than to previous suits of samples. And two, the method used for dating, which relied on the decay of two different isotopes of uranium that could serve as cross-checks on each other, were more reliable than previous methods based on other isotopes. There are two operational limitations to the use of zone fossils or overlapping ranges as tools of correlation. First, it's important to use biostratigraphic markers only in a positive way. If a stratum does not contain a fossil that is considered diagnostic of a particular stratigraphic interval, this does not necessarily imply that the stratum was not deposited during the interval in question. Even, in, even the most ubiquitous zone fossil is likely to be absent from a significant percentage of the strata deposited during the interval in which the tax, taxon was extant, either because the taxon did not live at the locations represented by those strata or because it was removed after its death by taphonomic processes. In some important stratigraphic intervals, e.g. parts of the Ordovician system, it has been difficult to identify reliable and globally ubiquitous biostratigraphic markers. Parts of the global timescale therefore remain in flux. Second, there are limits to the degree of temporal resolution possible with these methods, owing to the simple fact that fossil species tended to persist for several million years. For many paleobiological for many paleobiological questions in which morphological and ecological patterns are assessed in time, uh, in space or through time, it would be useful to have a stratigraphic framework that permits much finer temporal acuity, at least on a regional basis. 6.2. Composite methods of correlation. Recognizing the need to develop timescales that are more highly resolved, biostratigraphers are adopting newer, more sophisticated methods that combine data on fads and lads from several outcrops into several composite, quote, sections. These composites can then be used as timescales that not only depict the order of the events, i.e. the fads and lads, that they uh, include, sorry, it's cut off again, but can also serve as references for determining probable stratigraphic placement of additional outcrops that are evaluated at some later date. In this respect, the methods we consider here have something common, but they have much in common probably, but they differ from one another in that those data are assembled and treated to contrast the composites maybe? Construct the composites? Not sure. They are worth reviewing, not because of their growing usefulness, but because they're, because they illustrate well the jigsaw-like puzzle, jigsaw puzzle-like challenge of piecing together information from a disparate set of localities. Graphic correlation. First proposed by Alan B. Shaw, e.g., 1964, 
The fundamental principles of graphic correlation can be illustrated by first considering the case of two outcrops A and B, present as examples in figures 6.3. Using conventional biostratigraphic methods, a paleo paleontologist would sink seek to correlate directly the fads and lads of taxa presently joining present jointly at both outcrops, taxa 8 and uh, taxa something and 9 in figure 6.3a. However, several additional something are present uniquely at each outcrop, and it would something viously be desirable to combine all of the stratigraphic range information from the two outcrops so that one could know the relative order of all the fads and lads preserved at the two outcrops. This is accomplished with graphic correlation by first developing a line of correlation, link of correlation, not sure, between the two outcrops uh, based on all the events that they share and then superimposed onto the LOC, something of correlation, um, the additional biological events of each outcrop. The methodology for determining an LOC is described in box 6.1. Once the LOC is defined, events that are unique to outcrop A can be projected onto outcrop B, providing a composite of all of the biological events preserved at both localities, thereby resulting in the composite standard reference section, or more simply, the composite standard, CS. At this point, the power of graphic correlation becomes evident because the procedure is not limited to the two initial sections. Sections, It can be repeated indefinitely by correlating additional outcrops with the composite standard, which continues to mature, which continues to something, uh, as long as taxa not recognized previously continue to be incorporated graphically into the composite section. Box 6.1, Graphic Correlation. In graphic correlation, the stratigraphic range data for each section are placed at right angles to one another as axes of a two-dimensional grid with distances along each axis corresponding to the distances above the base of each section. By convention, the section with the highest with the greater number of events is placed along the x-axis, although in this example, outcrops A and B contain equal numbers of taxa. As a next step, the events common to both sections, i.e. the fads and lads of taxa 5 and 9, are projected horizontally in the case of the section of the y-axis and vertically in the case of the section on the x-axis, to the center of the graph, figure 6.3c. The points where the projections from the two axes meet on the graph define the LOC between the two outcrops. In the idealized example of figure 6.3, note that the two outcrops are of equal thickness, thus the LOC resides at a 45 degree angle to each axis. This is typically not the case, however. If one outcrop exhibits a greater thickness than the other outcrop for the same stratigraphic interval, then the slope of the LOC will fall closer to the axis of the thicker outcrop than it will to that of the thinner one. Moreover, in the real world, it is highly unlikely that all FAD and LAD events are correlated among two outcrops will fall precisely on a straight line. For example, in cases where intermittent variations in stratigraphic thickness exhibited at one outcrop are not matched in corresponding intervals at the other outcrop, a connecting together of the quote dots representing joint fads and lads would result not in a straight line, but in a line that contains meanders.
Finally, because of the preservational issues, the sequence of fads and lads for the same fossils, i.e. shared events, at two outcrops will not always be identical. The derived LOC might therefore have to accommodate contradiction among localities in the order of shared events. Numerous protocols have been proposed for estimating the LOC in the event of these complications, some of which will be discussed later. End box. This process is illustrated in figure 6.5. By convention, the CS is placed along the x-axis of the two-dimensional Cartesian grid, and the additional outcrop to be correlated to the CS is placed along the y-axis. Note that the units designated along the x-axis in this example do not correspond to the distances above the base of a single outcrop, but are reported as composite standard units, CSUs. The values for CSUs in this example are derived from the timescale for Paleocene through Oligocene planktonic foraminiferida. Is that right? Foraminiferida. Yeah. Developed by the former Amico Oil Company. The global ranges of these species in composite standard in the composite standard had already been established firmly in CSUs based on previous biostratigraphic analyses. As before, the LOC is drawn based on the fads and lads of taxa presently joint, joint, present jointly at the outcrop and in the CS, taxa 1 and 9, as shown in figure 6.5a. The ranges of two additional uh, taxa present, present uniquely at the outcrop taxa 2 and 4 are then projected onto the LOC. On this basis, the outcrop has been correlated to the CS and, at the same time, the CS has matured further through the addition of the fads and lads of two additional taxa. Therefore, the CS for any given region continues to mature, uh, and it not only provides a means of correlating outcrops throughout the region with increased resolution, but it also provides the regional timescale recording the order of biological events represented by the fads and lads of the taxa. In practice, the events correlated geographic, or sorry, graphically need not be biological and can include discrete physical events. For example, volcanic ash falls are sometimes preserved in the stratigraphic record as bentonites, clay layers that can be recognized at numerous localities, sometimes over broad geographic ranges. Appearance event ordination. The procedure in graphic correlation of adding one locality at a time to the CS necessarily places greater weight on information added early in the process. If there, was no, if there were no contradictions in the information on stratigraphic ranges available from different localities, this would not be a problem. However, such contradictions are virtually inevitable because of preservational and lithological differences from locality to locality, and the CS becomes constrained increasingly as data from more and more localities are added to the composite thereby favoring the information from localities added earlier. By contrast, the family of methods that we consider next all involve the simultaneous assessment of data from multiple localities. Even in cases where there are no contradictions among a set of localities in the fads and lads of the taxa that they share, the stratigraphic ordering depicted for some of these events in a composite section may nevertheless be correct. As a simple, if somewhat extreme, example, consider a case in which the evolutionary origination of some widespread taxon A preceded that of another widespread taxon B, but simply by chance, depositional and taphonomic processes throughout an entire study area remove any evidence of taxon A in strata below those containing the fad of taxon B. 
In such a case, the data from all localities would therefore be unanimous in depicting the fad of taxon B in a position below that of taxon A, and a composite section would therefore depict incorrectly the first appearance of taxon B as preceding that of A. More generally, if we consider the relative ordering of the fads or that of the lads for any pair of taxa preserved at an outcrop, it is always possible that an additional sampling will reverse the ordering of either pair of events, figure 6.6. However, if at some outcrop, we observe that taxon A occurs in strata that are below or overlap with strata that contain taxon B, there is one statement that will remain incontrovertible, regardless of how much more sampling we conduct at the outcrop or anywhere else in the world barring post-mortem reordering of taxa. The fad, and indeed the evolutionary first appearance of taxon A, must predate the lad and extinction of taxon B. This must be so because while additional sampling, sampling could revise the fad of taxon A or the lad of taxon B up, it cannot negate the overlap already observed in the ranges of the two taxa. Similarly, if taxon A overlaps stratigraphically with taxon B, it must also be true that the fad of taxon B predates the lad of taxon A. John Alroy's 1994A Appearance Event Ordination, AEO, makes in exclusive use of these incontrovertible observations, called the F-L statements. Not all F-L statements will be preserved at all localities in a region under investigation, and AEO is designed to piece together a CS from the combination of information presented at all localities. The basic principles of AEO are described in box 6.2. Note that in the example presented in box 6.2, the positioning of events in the CS is relative. No absolute indication is provided for timing of these events. However, as with graphic correlation and the other methods we will consider, a CS generated by AEO can be calibrated to an absolute timescale based on the correlations of some of that events to horizons from which absolute dates have been collected. Constrained optimization and ranking and scaling. While F-L statements are, not are incontrovertible, this of course does not imply that other kinds of relationship relationships observed among events are necessarily incorrect. The inclusion of some of these additional events, assuming that we can trust them, can obviously help further refine a CS, constrained optimization, uh, C-O-N-O-P. Sorry, that was the same sentence. Um, or I mean, it was not the same sentence. Constrained optimization, C-O-N-O-P, is a procedure that makes broader use of broader use than AEO of the stratigraphic events recognized collectively at a set of localities. As part of the procedure for CONOP, impossible solutions are first eliminated, constraint, and the best of all possible solutions is identified quantitatively, optimization. At the outset, in constraining the roster of possible solutions, any solution can be viewed as impossible if it violates observations known to be incontrovertible. For example, it would obviously be inappropriate to establish a sequence in which the first appearance of any species is placed after its last appearance. Likewise, if the ranges of two species, A and B, are observed to overlap at any outcrop, we know from our discussion in the last section that the fad of taxon A must precede the lad of taxon B, and the fad of taxon B must precede the lad of taxon A. Clearly, any solution that suggests otherwise would be incorrect. Box 6.2, Appearance Event Ordination, AEO. 
As a first step in appearance event ordination, AEO, consider the three hypothetical localities in figure 6.7a, depicting the stratigraphic occurrences of five species. Not all species are preserved at all localities, and species may occur in multiple horizons at any given locality. A list of F-L statements derived from the information at each locality is provided in figure 6.7b. By convention, these statements are presented with a syntax of x is less than y, which means that the fad of taxon x predates the lad of taxon y. For example, at section 1, we know that because one, taxa 1 and 2 co-occur at the same horizon at locality 1, the following statements must be true. 1 is less than 2, and 2 is less than 1. What? Okay. Similarly, because taxon 3 occurs stratigraphically above taxon 1 at locality 1, we know also that 1 is less than 3. However, it would not be appropriate to say that 3 is less than 1 because taxon 3 does not occur at or below the horizon that contains taxon 1. We can summarize the information from figures 6.7a and 6.7b in the matrix presented in figure 6.7c. Instances in which lad, or sorry, fads, rows, predate lads, columns, are designated with the symbol uh, less than. Although it is inevitable that the fad of any taxon must predate its own lad, we conclude we include these statements in the matrix because we will depict these events in RCS. From the information in the F-L matrix, we construct a composite event sequence, really the CS, as depicted in figure 6.7D. We begin by first finding all taxa uh, with fads that predate the first lad. In this instance, we recognize in figure 6.7c that fads 1 and 2 predate lad 1, so we predict these events sequentially in figure 6.7d, i.e. fad 1 and fad 2 together followed by lad 1. We then repeat this process, determining which fads precede the subsequent lads until our entire event sequence is determined. Lad 1 predates Lad 3 because there is no evidence of stratigraphic overlap between taxa 1 and 3, and the stratigraphic range of taxon 1 resides entirely below that of taxon 3. By contrast, there is a stratigraphic overlap of taxa 2 and 3, and therefore Fad 3 predates Lad 2, i.e. 3 is less than 2. Note that LAD2 and LAD3 are grouped in tandem in the sequence because, based on the available evidence, we have no way of discriminating the relative timing of these two events. The same is true of FAD1 and LAD, or sorry, FAD1 and FAD2. Their grouping should therefore not be taken as a definitive indication that the two events took place simultaneously. In pursuing the CS, it might not seem clear at first how we can ascertain of the sequence depicted, how we can, we can be certain of the sequence depicted. For example, how do we quote know that FAD4 postdates LAD3? The answer is that we can never be completely certain of this because it is always possible that at a later date we will find some evidence, say, of stratigraphic overlap in the distributions of taxa A or taxa 3 and 4. However, for the moment, all available events point to the stratigraphic range of taxon 4 entirely post-dating that of taxon 3, so FAD4 is depicted as occurring after LAD3. While, as we noted earlier, individual F-L statements are incontrovertible, the sequence of FADs and LADs exhibited by a set of taxa may continue to evolve with, a new addition, with the addition of new data, and therefore we may well add F-L statements in the future.
end box. In developing an optimized solution, a CS is established for events preserved in aggregate among localities. When one works with a large number of taxa and localities, it is almost unavoidable that individual localities will preserve some events in an order different than that of the CS, because as we noted earlier, there will likely be some contradictions in the relative orders of fads and lads for taxa shared among localities. An additional objective, therefore, is to develop an optimal reordering of events at each locality that maintains the order established for the CS in the first step. A schematic description of how this can be accomplished is presented in box 6.3. In delineating the optimal ordering of events, it is useful to determine the abundance of a taxon throughout its observed range. All else being equal, stratigraphic range of a taxon will more closely approximate its true range when it is ubiquitous throughout its observed range. In such instances, a researcher can have confidence that additional specimens have discovered at some later date are less likely to fall outside the observed range of the taxon. This is perhaps the best understood, best understood by considering the extreme opposite case, in which just a single specimen of a taxon is known from a locality, and therefore the fad and lad of the taxa coincide. In such a case, a researcher, oh, the fad and lad of the taxon coincide. In such a case, the researcher cannot be very confident that an additional specimen found at a later date will come from the same horizon as the first specimen. In fact, there is a strong possibility that the second specimen would come from a different horizon, thereby changing the fad or lad, depending on whether the second specimen is found stratigraphically below or above the first one. Thus, we would seek to weight the ranges of common taxa more heavily than those of taxa in deriving optimized solutions. Than those of rare taxa, that is. I think I misread that. Continuing to build on these themes, a procedure known as ranking and scaling, RASC, can also be applied to stratigraphic data. The objective of RASC is to estimate the most probable ranges of taxa, under the assumption that inconsistencies among localities and the order of fads and lads result from some random combination of processes, such as those highlighted earlier, that potentially affect the stratigraphic ranges or taxa observed at individual locality, at any individual locality. In the simplest case, the relative orders of any given pair of a and B are compared at all localities, and the order that occurs most commonly, either A above B or B above A, is deemed to be the most probable sequence. However, it is sometimes the case that contradictions will arise in determining pairwise orderings of three or more events. In these cases, a determination is made with the RASC of the most probable order of events, as discussed in box 6.4. Despite their differences, there is no reason to expect that any of the methods just highlighted should produce wildly contradictory results when applied to the same data. A comparison by Roger Cooper and colleagues, 2001, of GraphCore, Graphic Correlation, CONOP, and RASC, C-O-N-O-P and R-A-S-C, is illustrated in figure 6.8, based on fossil data collected from eight wells in the Taranaki Basin of New Zealand, and encompassing a complex set of Paleocene to Miocene data, uh, strata. Since the data comes from cores, the authors decided to exclude all fads from the analyses because the possibility of downward smearing for reasons that were discussed in box 6.3. Results generated with each method exhibit strong similarities, and not surprisingly, most differences are concentrated in a central portion of the interval where there are many narrowly spaced events. 
the COnOP sequence was easily correlated directly to an existing regional timescale uh, because most of the events depicted in figure 6.8 are well known outside the Taranaki Basin, and their broader stratigraphic significance throughout New Zealand had already been determined. Thus, based on these events, it was possible to correlate each of the localities individually to the regional timescale, as well as to one another. Box 6.3, Constrained Optimization, CONOP. Using CONOP, determine, or let's just call it constrained optimization, then maybe we'll learn the initialism better. <laughs> constrained, using constrained optimization, determination of an optimal ordering of events at a locality and of the CS itself involves the use of weighting different, the use of weighting coefficients based on quantification of the likelihood that some observed fads and lads of taxa are more dependable than others. In particular, it is important to take into account the truncations of stratigraphic ranges that are virtually inevitable in association with unconformities and changes in lithology. Conversely, there are also predictable tendencies for the preserved ranges of taxa to be extended beyond their initial true preserved ranges. For example, fossil specimens in drill cores often tend to be smeared downward by physical processes associated with drilling and extrusion of the core. This should cause a downward smearing of the fad of any taxon whose stratigraphically lowest occurrences are affected in this way. By contrast, lads of common taxa are less likely to be affected by this process because, while some specimens will be transported downward in the core, other specimens will remain at their original stratigraphic positions in the core, thereby preserving the lad. Of course, if the taxon is rare, this increases the likelihood that all specimens will be smeared downward, thereby altering the lad as well. In any case, when unconformities and dramatic lithological transformations uh, characterize the data from a locality, or when the data come from a core, these factors will result in the downweighting or even the elimination of certain classes of data. Box 6.4, Ranking and Scaling, RASC. As an example of the use of ranking and scaling in a case in which contradictions might arise in the apparent order of three or more events, consider the ordering of events A, B, and C at several localities. It might be observed that event A occurs most frequently below free, uh, event B, and B most frequently below C. Therefore, it should follow that event A occurs below event C. Nevertheless, it is possible at some localities that event C will be observed to occur below event A. When these kinds of contradictions occur, the probability of pairwise event sequences are ranked with the greater weight given to the event pairs that occur most commonly among localities under investigation. In our three event pair example, therefore, if observations of events A above B and B above C occur more frequently among the sampling localities than the observation of event C above A, then C above A is discounted in establishing the most probable sequence. And box. 6.3, regional correlation with gradient analysis. In Chapter 9, we discuss how fossil data are used in the spatial delineation of ancient ecological communities. Because the analytical approaches we describe will uh, have proven also proven useful for high-resolution correlation, we now briefly take up these methods before returning them to the context of their paleoecology. 
Paleontologists now recognize that, like biological communities in the present day, ancient communities did not consist of tightly interlocked sets of species separated by discrete boundaries. Instead, just as environmental transitions along a marine transect or down the side of a mountain may be gradational, boundaries among the communities contained in these spaces are also gradational because the species tend to be linked closely to the environments in which they are capable of living. The analysis of spatial variations in biotic composition has therefore come to be known as gradient analysis, which typically involves statistical comparisons of paleontological samples collected from different localities, locations uh, arrayed along a hypothesized gradient. While many different numerical techniques have been used in gradient analysis, they are similar in comparing samples on the basis of occurrences, and typically the relative abundances of taxa that they contain. Data reduction techniques, like those discussed in Chapter 3, are then used to order the samples in a multidimensional space that reflects their compositional similarities. Samples with similar positions or scores in this space have similar biotic compositions. The same analytical techniques can also be used to assess the faunal variation through time rather than space. Samples are collected from a series of horizons arrayed stratigraphically at a given locality, and the resulting sample scores from gradient analysis can be graphed into stratigraphic order. This paints a picture of temporal variations in biotic composition at a locality that may be related directly to paleoenvironmental transitions. An example of how these variations can then be used to accomplish high-resolution regional correlations is presented in Box 6.5 on page 164 for a portion of the fossil-rich upper Ordovician strata in the Cincinnati, Ohio region. Because changes in water depth relate in some, though certainly not all, instances to global fluctuations in sea level, one might expect that gradient analyses should be used for global-scale correlations. However, although local and regional stratigraphic patterns are largely influenced by global variations in sea level, this is by no means this by no means suggests a one-to-one -one correlation of these variations with regional trends in water depth or other biologically significant environmental variables that are also expressed on a regional level. Individual regions are characterized by environmental factors, e.g., the availability of a source area for terrigeny terrigenous sediments or the evolution of basin topography that produce unique biotic transitions. Thus, while gradient analysis is a powerful tool for high-resolution correlation at the regional scale, it does not have much potential for global correlation. 6.4. Sequence stratigraphy and the distribution of fossils. Earlier, we noted that the postmortem processes, or simply the tendencies of taxa to live in some environment settings and not in others, make it highly unlikely that any two correlative intervals at different localities will contain exactly the same roster of taxa preserved in the same stratigraphic order. To some extent, these factors are expressed randomly in time and space. There's no telling precisely where a taxon will turn up in the fossil record throughout its paleogeographic, paleoenvironmental, or stratigraphic extent. However, there are also non-random factors that tend to produce a high concentration of taxonomic occurrences, particular, particularly fads and lads in specific uh, types, types, specific something of horizons that are laterally extensive. In fact, stratigraphic patterns of first and last occurrences, regionally and perhaps globally, may relate predictably to the physical stratigraphic record. 
the delineation of these relationships emanates directly from sequence stratigraphy. A fundamental goal of sequence stratigraphy is to diagnose a hierarchy of stratigraphic units and the boundaries between them. Because the processes that produced these patterns were regional, or in some cases global in scope, it follows that the units, or at least the boundaries between them, should be correct. Uh, cor Let's cut off the corm. Corm. Hmm. Correlative, probably, over broad areas. To the extent that this is the case, it has motivated an intriguing pair of questions for paleontologists. One, are fads and lads concentrated at these boundaries? And if so, two, can these boundaries be taken as evidence for rapid evolutionary transitions? As we will see, an affirmative answer to the first question does not necessarily imply an affirmative answer to the second. A depositional sequence can be defined as a unit bounded at its base and topped by a sequence, something, SB. That's irritating. Sequence binary, maybe? I don't know. Uh, which is marked by a marine or... Oh no, come on. Marine or exposed erosional surface, i.e. a hiatus, or a non-eroded interval that correlates to a hiatus recognized at other localities. Sequence boundaries are caused by relative falls in sea level. The internal architecture of sequences, in turn, may be controlled by several factors, including the global fluctuations in sea level, the rate at which these fluctuations take place, local changes in water depth, tectonic controls on the geometry of the depositional basin, and the availability of sediment. Of all these factors, global sea level may have an overriding effect, at least among large-scale sequences that may be several tens to thousands of meters thick. The factors controlling smaller-scale sequences have been more open to question. The anatomy of an idealized sequence is described in Box 6.6. .6. Box 6.5, High-Resolution Correlation with Gradient Analysis. The use of gradient analysis as a method of correlation is illustrated in Figures 1.3. 10 and 1.11. In figure 6.10, samples from the study area near Cincinnati are compared using a data reduction technique called detrended correspondence analysis, DCA. Here, scores are graphed stratigraphically as a simple XY line plot in the middle column for faunal census samples collected from every fossiliferous horizon at a locality in northern Kentucky. A smoothed version of these data uh, presented in the right column is a moving average for the same data, constructed by averaging together for each horizon the scores of several contiguous horizons, 21 in this case, centered on the horizon in question. In developing the moving average, there is no definitive guideline for deciding how many contiguous points to average together. As with the diagnosis of periodicity in harmonic analysis, see box 2.2, the objective is to make it easier to see long-term trajectories in the curve, while removing higher-frequency fluctuations that hinder the researcher's ability to recognize the broader pattern. Typically, there is some trial and error involved in determining a suitable number of points to average. In the moving average curve, there are several broad, quote, meanders to the left, lower scores, and right, higher scores that are associated with significant changes to the faunal compositions of something. Samples with higher scores are, dominant, are dominated by large, robust brachiopods and branching bryozoans. Based on previous studies of their natural histories, these are known to have been associated in the study region with shallow, relatively turbulent waters, in which fine-grained sediments generally did not settle permanently on the seafloor. 
Samples with lower scores are dominated by more fragile, smaller brachiopods, as well as trilobites that were associated with quieter water and muddier, i.e. finer-grained, seafloors. Therefore, inflections on the smoothed curve record transitions from intervals of deepening to intervals of shallowing, or vice versa, at the locality. Because these broad transitions were at least regional in scope, the inflection points can be correlated among localities throughout the region. This approach is illustrated for the Cincinnati area localities in figure 6.11. Here, the smooth curve from the locality illustrated in figure 6.10 was placed in the middle, and the inflection horizons recognized in curves for several other localities were correlated directly to this curve. The correlations are supported by close correspondence to several distinctive horizons and surfaces that were already known on the basis of independent evidence to be correlative throughout the study area. End box. Box 6.6, the anatomy of a sequence. Because of the interplay and factors that control sedimentation, the nature of a sequence varies throughout its stratigraphic extent, and stratigraphers have designated three major sequence components. In stratigraphic order working upward, these are the low stand systems tract, LST, transgressive systems tract, TST, and high stand systems tract, HST. All three of these units in turn are built of sets of parasequences. A parasequence is a shallowing upward cycle that is bounded at its top by an abrupt deepening event, preserved as a flooding surface, which also defines the base of the next parasequence. The LST consists of a progradational, i.e. net seaward stacking, set of parasequences or sequences that lie above the sequence boundary. Because the relative rate of sea level rise during this initial transition is slow, the land-derived sediments that are deposited in shallow conditions and the successive set of parasequences or higher-order sequences that are produced by these sediments tend to build seaward away from the shoreline. By contrast, during subsequent deposition of, T of the TST, an increase in the rate of sea level rise causes successive parasequences or higher-order sequences to migrate landward, a pattern known as retrogradation. The sea level rise continues, but at a slower rate, in the early part of the HST. Because of the slower rate, the stacking pattern reverses in the HST back to progradation. In the late part of the HST is characterized by a relative fall in sea level. Aptly, the boundary between the TST and the HST is referred to as the maximal flooding surface, which records the greatest water depth in the sequence and marks the transition from retrogradational to progradational stacking. As indicated by our discussion of the HST, the maximum flooding surface does not mark a cessation of sea level rise. It forms at some point following a decrease in the rate of sea level rise, when this rate is balanced by the rate of sedimentation. Thereafter, the rate of sedimentation exceeds the rate of sea level rise and the progradation ensues. To understand how this can be so, it's important to keep in mind that water depth is not synonymous with sea level. Although this may seem paradoxical, water depth can actually decrease in a situation where the sea level is rising if a significant amount of sediment is flowing into the area, which is what occurs during progradation. And, in fact, much of the sedimentary record is deposited under regional conditions of rising sea level. As progradation continues and sea level ultimately does begin to fall in the later stages of the HST, the area may become exposed, producing a hiatus that marks the next sequence boundary. It should be kept in mind that the patterns illustrated in figure 6.12 describe an idealized situation, 
The exact nature of any sequence may vary considerably from this model, contingent on such factors as the time scale over which the variations are observed, the nature of the global sea level changes, regional variations in water depth, and the extent, if any, of subaerial exposure the shape of the depositional basin, the rate of tectonic subsidence, and the availability of various kinds of sediments. For example, a rather different pattern than that illustrated here might be expected in the absence of terrigenous sediments. End box. For our purposes here, the essential message of sequence stratigraphy is that the record preserves a hierarchical set of paleo-environmental variations. And within this hierarchy, it is possible to recognize particular horizons that make up that mark significant gaps in the deposition of sediments and fossils. Any taxonomic first or last occurrence that took place during an unpreserved interval at a particular location cannot possibly be recorded in the fossil record at that location. Therefore, it stands to reason that the lad of any taxon whose occurrence falls during such an interval should be observed somewhere beneath the gap, and the fad of any taxon whose first occurrence took place during such an interval should be observed somewhere above the interval. Moreover, fads and lads may be concentrated in a given section at times of rapid environmental change, when taxa that already exist follow their preferred environments and migrate into or out of the area when the section, where the section accumulated. With these points in mind, Stephen Holland has been investigating the relationship between the deposition uh, of sequences and the stratigraphic distributions of fossils. Holland, 1995, developed a set of models that simulate important depositional and taphonomic processes, and how they interact with the paleoecological properties of individual taxa to produce patterns that can be observed in the fossil record. Holland's models have two main factors. First, an environmental gradient, see section 9.3, is simulated in which each modeled taxon is randomly assigned uh, attributes that define its abundance and environmental preferences in the landscape. In all, three numerical characteristics are used to, that govern the abundance of each taxon along a simulated water depth gradient, with a distribution of individuals for the taxon that approximates a normal, i.e. bell-shaped, curve. A preferred depth, the center of the distribution where the taxon will exhibit its greatest probability of collection. A peak abundance, the maximum abundance achieved at the preferred depth. And a depth tolerance, the degree of spread in the distribution of the taxon. The latter is variable. Uh, the latter variable is in keeping with the recognition that some taxa are highly tolerant of environmental variation and can subsist over a broad environmental region, whereas others cannot. The second facet of this model simulates the occurrences of modeled taxa in sequence stratigraphic uh, context based on their attributes as defined in the previous step. In Holland's model, two shallow water sequences are simulated. Each has a duration of 3.5 million years, the scale typical of a typical regional sequence, and is broken into time steps that last 50,000 years. The time steps conform, to approximately, conform approximately to stratigraphic cycles recognized by field research. These are about one meter thick and compose larger scale sequences. Additional details of the model are described in box 6.7. In thinking intuitively about how the model works, it is useful to consider depth, i.e. environmental, preferences of any taxon in the context of the water depth preserved in the strata. For a given taxon to be preserved in a stratum, one prerequisite is that the stratum represent a paleo depth in which the taxon could have uh, something based on its model parameters. This section is going to be really rough. However, uh, the something means guarantees that the taxon will be found in something. If the taxon is comparative rare, it 
comparatively rare, it will something probability of collection that is substantially less something percent, even at its preferred depth. If the taxon is common, it will nevertheless be encountered less frequently in a stratum representing a paleo depth near the something, the depth, depth range that it can tolerate. As Holland demonstrated, even fairly common widespread taxa will not be encountered in every strata. Stratum? Um, something in every stratum that could potentially house them. Rarer taxa will something maybe inevitably be distributed spottily throughout their stratigraphic ranges. And as implied elsewhere, the outcome of spotty distribution is that the preserved fads and lads of taxa will almost certainly be truncated relative to the true intervals in which they first and last occurred. This truncation will, on average, be especially something rare taxa. There is likely to be some degree of range truncation for virtually all taxa. In this respect, the overprint of sequence something, um, archive, something to do with archival, archiving, sequence arc, something becomes particularly relevant. If the lower or uppermost portion of the temporal range of a taxon um, coincides with a depositional hiatus, coincides as a guess, <laughs> an inevitable outcome something earlier is that the lad or fad will be truncated something early maybe by the hiatus. Importantly, what Holland's something demonstrates is that we would expect lads and fads to coincide with the horizons immediately below lad or immediately above for a fad the something. Thus, even in an interval where diversity remains and the true temporal ranges of taxa are not coincided significantly at any horizon, we would expect a concentration of fads and lads at or near section boundaries. This is precisely what Holland observed in the outcome of his model. In figure 6.14, note the significant concentration observed first, something observed first appearances through each TST at something, the first three flooding surfaces, horizons of rapid something ending. These mark the flooding surfaces at the something parasequences. The taxa that form concentrations were of two basic types. One, shallow water taxa that originated during preceding low stand something were first observed in the section when the appropriate deposits are found for the first time during the transgression. Or two, deep water taxa that also originated something the preceding low stand or earlier in the shallow something of the upper HST of the previous sequence, where they would not have been preserved because deep water lithologies were not preserved at this location. Similarly, there is a significant concentration of, of observed lads at the top of each sequence, the top of each HST. This is because taxa whose true time of extinction coincided with the sequence boundary or with the subsequent unpreserved low stand had their observed ranges truncated at the at the boundary in addition lads are concentrated immediately beneath flooding surfaces in the tst these represent shallow water taxa with narrow depth tolerances that must have become extinct at some point after the deepening but prior to the recurrence of environments sufficiently shallow to house them 
Given the pervasiveness of sequence architecture in the stratigraphic record at several scales, it therefore becomes imperative to assess the possibility that observed local, regional, or global peaks in taxonomic origination or extinction may be inflated artificially by their association with sequence boundaries or by the loss of key paleoenvironments. For example, Daniel Goldman and colleagues, 1999, reevaluated the stratigraphic zonation of graptolites in the middle Ordovician strata of New York. Their analysis involved more extensive sampling than that of earlier work on these rocks, and they were able to place their biotic data in a stratigraphic framework developed independently using a network of volcanically derived K-bentonites, potassium-rich bentonites. Comparison with the K-bentonites reveals that the boundaries between graptolite zones are fairly isynchronous. At the same time, many common graptolite species were restricted to particular paleoenvironments, with some species occurring preferentially in shallow water and others in deep water. With respect to potential sequence stratigraphic overprints, this finding is particularly important because, as we saw when considering Holland's model, the restriction of species to certain environments enhances the likelihood that their ranges will be uh, concentrated artificially at or near sequence or systems tracked boundaries. Indeed, this is precisely what Goldman and colleagues found, as illustrated in figure 6.15. There is a clear association in the study interval of FADs with systems tracked boundaries. Moreover, stratigraphic gaps in the observed ranges of some species are recognized in association with the loss, followed by the return of particular of appropriate paleoenvironments. In fact, in some instances, because of the extensive sampling, Goldman and his colleagues found several occurrences of key taxa in beds significantly below and above their previously known stratigraphic ranges. Thus, although the traditional zonation is upheld, there is much there is a much more facies dependent there is much more facies dependence and sequence stratigraphic overprint than had previously been appreciated. Sequence stratigraphy can aid paleontology much more positively than might be suggested by these notes of caution. When fads and lads cluster at levels where they would not be expected as artifacts based on position in the sequence, then they represent strong candidates for true biological turnover events. Figure 6.16 shows examples from an upper Ordovician, Cincinnatian, second section in Indiana. C1 through C3 in this figure denote sequences. Several clusters of events appear where they would be expected based on Holland's models. For example, the spike of lads at the end of the HST of sequences C1 and C4. Others, however, appear where they are not predicted by the model and are therefore more likely to mark biological turnover. For example, the spike of lads within the high stand sequence of C5. Beyond the clustering of fads and lads, other paleobiological patterns are associated intimately with sequence stratigraphic architecture. For example, the nature of fossil preservation can vary significantly through a stratigraphic sequence, and even within a parasequence, because of variations in sedimentation rates, turbulence, geochemical conditions, and other parameters. With respect to correlation, these variations can be quite valuable. Beds marked by unique styles of preservation, or even a unique biotic composition produced by unusual depositional conditions, may be traced... Um, traceable through a region providing an additional means of high-resolution regional correlation. 6.5. Confidence limits on stratigraphic okay. ranges. The recognition that... Oh, wait. Actually, I'm going to go back and read a box first. Box 6.7. Additional aspects of Holland's model. Because of its relative proximity to shoreline, a shallow water sequence often lacks the LST. 
Shallower areas will be subaerially exposed during low stance, provided that tectonic subsidence rates are low. If subsidence rates are high, subaerial exposure will not occur and the LST will be preserved. Holland's model excluded the deposition during the LST, figure 6.14, because much of the fossil record comes from slowly subsiding areas. In each of the two modeled sequences, the TST consisted of two parasequences and the HST consisted of six. In the case of the TST, its transgressive nature can be seen by the deepening leftward sawtooth pattern exhibited by two parasequences. This conforms to the retrogradational pattern illustrated for the TST in figure 6.12. In the case of the HST, a shallowing rightward pattern was exhibited, owing to the slowing and reversal of sea level rise and the infilling of the basin with sediment. This conforms to the progradational pattern exhibited for the HST in figure 6.12. The entire range depth represented in the preserved portion of each modeled sequence was 65 meters. Against this backdrop, standing taxonomic diversity was held constant at 1,000 taxa, with a random extinction probability of 0.0125 in each 50,000-year time step. This corresponds to an empirically calibrated mean species duration of 4 million years. To hold diversity fixed, each extinction was matched by the origination of a new taxon during the subsequent time step. Upon origination, each taxon was randomly assigned a preferred depth ranging from 0 to 65 meters, a peak abundance ranging from 25 to 100% probability of being collected, and a depth tolerance ranging from 1 to 21 meters. This combination of model parameters produced the pattern of first and last occurrences illustrated in figure 6.14. End box. Okay. 6.5. Confidence limits on stratigraphic ranges. The recognition that depositional environments and their associated facies may vary, and that the probability of collecting fossils from a given species varies with facies, can also be turned to advantage to estimate uh, the probable size of the gap between the addressed lad and the true time of extinction, or between the observed fad and the true time of origination. To see how this is possible, first consider the overly simplified situation in which the probability of sampling is assumed to be constant over time. Figure 6.17 depicts the stratigraphic range of a hypothetical species. There are 50 time increments between its first and last appearance, and it is actually represented by fossils in five of these increments. Thus, the estimated sampling probability of the species is 5 out of 50, or 0.1 per time increment. Let us step one time increment beyond its observed last appearance and ask, how likely is it that the species was still alive at this time, but simply not preserved? The probability is 1 minus 0.1, or 0.9, a high enough value that it is quite reasonable to suppose that the species was still alive. If we go two time increments past the last appearance, then the probability that it was still alive, but simply not preserved, is equal to 0.9 squared, or 0.81. In other words, there is an 81% chance that the species is still alive, and only a 19% chance that it has become extinct. In this, particular, in this particular example, the probability that a species will fail to be preserved in seven successive time increments is 0.9 to the seventh, or 0.48. At this point, it is about equally likely that the species is still alive as it is that it has already become extinct. The point in time at which the odds are even in this way is referred to as the 50% confidence limit. It is essentially a best guess for the something of time of extinction. 
the size of the confidence interval varies from case to case, being smaller when the sampling probability is higher. Wider confidence limits, something 95%, can also be constructed if one wants to something even more certain that the true extinction falls somewhere between the last appearance and thus and this limit. Confidence limits can be developed in the same way for first appearances. The approach of confidence limits, sketched out in figure 6.17, is valid only if we assume that the average sampling probability does not change significantly, as it might if the last appearance of the species coincides, coincided with a change in facies. If we knew how the probability of sampling varied with facies, we could easily substitute these variable probabilities into figure 6.17. Box 6.8 illustrates one way that this can be done. Box 6.8, confidence limits on stratigraphic ranges with variable sampling probability. The curve on the left in figure 6.18 shows estimated water depth through the upper Ordovician, Cope, and lower Fairview formations. It is the same as the curve in figure 6.10, with the x-axis reversed so the deeper facies are on the right. The bell-shaped curves in the upper part of figure 6.18 depict estimated sampling probabilities for the trilobite Cryptolithus and the Brachiopod, Sower biella, relative to inferred water depth. These are analogous to the hypothetical sampling curves in figure 6.13, but they are based on the actual frequency with which each genus is found in each environment. Cryptolithus preferred slightly deeper water than Sower biella, and the overall of its and overall its probability of sampling is only about half of that of Sower biella. Knowing how water depth varies and how sampling probability varies with water depth is straightforward to determine how sampling probability varies through the section. This is indicated by the black bars. For example, Sower biella has the highest probability, sampling probability, just under 50%, in relatively deep waters corresponding to a detrended correspondence analysis, DCA, score of about 100. Thus, whenever the left-hand curve hits 100, the sampling curve for Sower biella hits its maximum. The dots in figure 1.18 show stratigraphic levels at which Cryptolithus and Sower biella were actually sampled. The last appearance of Cryptolithus is about 59 meters in the section, and that of Sorbiella is at about 32 meters. The disappearance of Cryptolithus comes at a time of low sampling probability corresponding to water depths at which it did not prefer to live. It is therefore quite likely that its disappearance is not a true extinction. If the variable sampling probabilities are applied as in figure 6.17, the 95% confidence limit is well beyond the top of the section. Sower biella, by contrast, disappears from the record despite the persistence of facies in which it would have a reasonably high probability of being sampled if it were still alive. It is therefore likely that the true extinction is close to the last appearance. Accordingly, the 95% confidence limit is just short above the last appearance. 6.6, oh, end box, 6.6, concluding remarks. Rather than accepting the stratigraphic record of fossil occurrences at face value, paleontologists are coming to understand why a particular fossil is likely to occur at a particular place in the record. And just as important, they are developing methods to help reconcile differences in the stratigraphic distributions of taxa from locality to locality. Not only is this permitting more sophisticated approaches to high-resolution correlation, it is also a prerequisite to understanding the causes of many of the paleontological patterns described throughout this book.
For example, it is possible that the physical transitions responsible for sequence architecture and sequence boundaries were also capable of inducing real extinction and significant biotic turnover. However, as Holland's model illustrated for us, the rate at which these transitions are observed to have taken place in the stratigraphic record can exaggerate significantly the true rate of biological turnover. Recognizing these relationships, researchers are now developing methods that incorporate preservation of criteria, preservation criteria directly into the calibration of taxonomic origination and extinction events.